0: Well, it's good to be here with you once again today. And in a moment, we will be reading from John's Gospel, chapter 10. So if you want to locate that passage, John's Gospel, chapter 10. As we have already observed, today is the first Sunday in Advent. But do you know what else today is? Well, let me give you a hint. As we Christians are entering into the Christmas season and we are greeting one another by saying Merry Christmas, what are our Jewish friends saying in greeting to one another? Happy Hanukkah, right? Happy Hanukkah. Well, yep. This evening marks the beginning of the Jewish observance of Hanukkah. To which news your response very likely is, well, okay, so what? I'm very happy that you asked that question because before we are finished today, I hope that you will see the relevance of the observance of Hanukkah for today's text. So let's look in John's Gospel, chapter 10, And I will begin reading at verse 22. Verse 22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico, your text may say the colonnade of Solomon. Now John provides us a time and a place for the event that he is about to relate. We learn that Jesus has traveled to Jerusalem to observe the Jewish Feast of Dedication. But that raises at least two questions, doesn't it? First of all, what and when was the Feast of Dedication? And secondly, what was the significance of the Feast of Dedication? So let's take just a brief examination of the Feast of Dedication. If we wanted to study the Feast of Dedication Where in the Old Testament should we look to find the Jewish people being instructed to observe that particular feast? You're precisely correct. Nowhere. Uh, You're not going to find it. The Feast of Dedication was not a religious observance mandated by God in the Old Testament. In fact apart from the fact that the jewish people were the ones who were observing the feast of dedication this particular observance has nothing to do with the old testament at all so what was the feast of dedication and how did it originate now i don't know about you but i've happened to find this a fascinating story and i'm going to have to abbreviate it greatly this morning I'd love to tell you all the details, but it is really a fascinating account. But but to discover how the Feast of Hanukkah originated, we'd have to go back to 167 B.C., 167 B.C. Now, of course, that date is after the conclusion of the Old Testament era and prior to the beginning of the New Testament period. It falls in that time period that is often called the intertestamental period. And our, another, it's during the Greek period in Jewish history. And in 167 BC, the Jewish people were dominated by Syrian rulers who were called the Seleucids, the Seleucids. And the king of the Seleucids in 167 B.C. was a man by the name of Antiochus IV. Now, he didn't want to be called Antiochus IV. In fact, he demanded that people call him Antiochus Epiphanes. Have you heard that fellow's name? Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes comes from a Greek word that means manifest or manifestation. And Antiochus wanted to be called Epiphanes because he considered himself to be the human manifestation of the Greek god Zeus. Yeah, Zeus in human form is what he considered himself to be. And, oh, by the way, the Jewish people, of course, did not want to call him Epiphanes, so under their breath, you know, they did not want the Syrians to hear them say this, but under their breath, they would refer to him as Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman. And the guy probably was, if you actually studied the history of him. But Antiochus Epiphanes was on a crusade to compel the Jewish people to abandon their religion. He wanted them to abandon their Jewish culture, their Jewish traditions, their Jewish religion, and to embrace Greek culture, philosophy, way of life, and Greek religions. Antiochus made it illegal for the Jewish people to follow the law of Moses, follow the traditions associated with their culture and their society. It was illegal to possess a copy of the Jewish scriptures, illegal to observe the Sabbath, circumcise your sons. Antiochus tried to essentially obliterate the Jewish religion, Jewish culture and Jewish society and to get the Jewish people to begin to live and worship and behave and act like Greeks. And as you can imagine, this was a time of intense persecution for the Jewish people. Many were tortured and killed because they refused to follow the agenda of Antiochus Epiphanes. By the way, in Jewish history, in fact to this very day, Antiochus Epiphanes is considered the, by Jewish historians at least, is considered the epitome of evil, wickedness, and cruelty. And the crowning blow inflicted upon the Jewish people by Antiochus occurred on 25 Kislev, 167 BC. Kislev is the Jewish month, the name of a Jewish month, but it corresponds on our calendar to November-December. kind of falls in November-December on our calendar. Antiochus Epiphanes had taken control of the Jewish temple there in Jerusalem. Now remember, it's already illegal to practice the Jewish religion. He has control of the temple now. And on 25 Kislev, 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes offered sacrifices to Zeus upon the altar of sacrifice there in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and according to Jewish historians and tradition in order to make their sacrifices he presented even more repugnant to the Jewish people he included swine in the sacrifices they put on the altar that was built and dedicated for the worship of Yahweh now this marked a turning point in Jewish history Because in 167 BC, the Jewish people, at least some of the Jewish people, very devout Orthodox Jewish people, under the leadership of a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus, rebelled against Epiphanes and his agenda. And three years later, to the very day, on 25 Kislev, 164 BC, Judas Maccabeus and his men had regained control of the temple in Jerusalem. They cleansed the temple and dedicated it once again to the worship and service of Yahweh. 25 Kislev, 164 BC. Now, was this a big deal in Jewish history? I hope to shout it was. In fact, it was such a big deal that it became an annual celebration and is still being observed to this very day. Because Judas had dedicated the temple to the service and worship of Yahweh, the, the celebration came to be called Hanukkah because Hanukkah comes from a Jewish word that means Dedication. And because tradition says there was a miraculous provision of light during the cleansing process of the temple, Hanukkah is observed for a week, a week-long observance. So do you see now why the observance of Hanukkah has relevance for our text today? John informs us that Jesus went up to Jerusalem, believe it or not, to observe Hanukkah, the feast of dedication. And the significance of that observation clearly was the cleansing and the dedication of the temple for the worship and service of Yahweh. And therefore, in the year 2018, Hanukkah officially begins on the evening of December the 2nd on our calendar today. You can also understand why John mentioned that it was winter. You notice in verse 23, he says, and it was winter. He had to put that in there because not everybody was as fortunate as you and has had somebody explain to you that this happened on 25 Kislev, uh, which is November, December. So obviously it was winter, but of course not everyone would have known that. So John wants to set the time and the place. Now, of course, this sets the stage and is all preliminary to what occurred while Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. So let's read verse 24. The Jews then gathered around Jesus and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, Jesus is walking there in the portion of the temple called Solomon's Colonnade or Solomon's Portico, and he finds himself surrounded by some Jewish people. John calls them the Jews. Now, when John uses that term in his gospel, he usually is using it in a technical sense. He's not referring to Jewish people in general. Typically, John says the Jews when he wants to refer to the Jewish religious officials, typically who were in opposition to Jesus. And John informs us that the Jews posed a question to Jesus and then issued a demand. Now, the question they posed is just a little bit difficult to understand because if you were to read the question in the original Greek, Here's what they ask Jesus. How long are you lifting up our soul? How long are you lifting up our soul? Any idea what that means? Well, most of our English versions have taken it to mean something like, how long will you keep us in suspense? Maybe. It might mean that. And if that's what the Jews meant... It sounds like they were perplexed and confused concerning Jesus' identity, and they wanted clarity and certainty. You know, how long do you want to keep us in suspense? Now, you need to be careful. If they were demanding clarity and certainty, it was not so that they could worship Jesus. It was so that they could have a basis to attack Jesus. Remember, these are those who are in opposition to Jesus. Jesus. Now, there is another possibility. In fact, there are several possibilities, but at least one other possibility for what that question may have meant. It may have meant something like this. How long are you going to annoy us? Now, then it has kind of an antagonistic attitude, right? The Jews would have been accusing Jesus of taunting them and treating them unfairly by his veiled references to himself. Now, given... What John goes on to, to report in his narrative, which one of those two meanings do you think is the most likely? Well, it seems to me that the first one is probably the most likely, that how long are you going to keep us in suspense? You know, we want, we want some information, we want to know something. Because you notice the very next thing the Jewish people did was demand, issue a demand to Jesus, Literally, they said, and this would be a little bit of an over-translation because it's an emphatic statement in the Greek. They said, if you yourself are the Christ, speak to us plainly. Issue a demand to Jesus. And here it would appear that the religious leaders demanded that Jesus make it clear and unequivocal concerning his identity as the Messiah. If you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Well, verses 25 through 30 record the answer of Jesus to that demand. And in the first two verses, verse 25, verse 26, Jesus explained why his previous testimony had not been believed by these Jewish adversaries. Look what he says. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Basically, what was Jesus' initial response to the Jews when they issued the demand that he speak Plainly concerning his identity. Essentially, he said, I told you already, and you didn't believe. Right? Basically what he says. But my question to you is this. When? When did Jesus explicitly identify himself as the Messiah to the Jewish religious leaders? Well, the truth is, up to this point, He had not done so. In fact, Jesus had studiously avoided making any such assertion to the Jews. Why? Why had Jesus refused to identify himself explicitly as the Messiah to the Jewish people? Well, what were the Jewish people expecting in the person of the Messiah? When a Jewish person said, I'm looking for the Messiah, what did that person look for? A descendant of King David, right? Who would lead the armies of Israel to defeat their oppressors and who would then establish a glorious kingdom over which he would reign as king and the Jewish people would occupy positions of prestige and privilege, So the Jews were looking for and hoping for a royal, political, military conqueror. So you can see, can you not, that if Jesus were to go around identifying himself explicitly to the Jewish people, I'm the long-expected Messiah, it very likely would have precipitated an uprising. They would have started looking for their weapons. And have caused a premature crisis. And by the way, do you recall there was one group of people to whom Jesus explicitly identified himself as the Christ? Do you remember who that was? It wasn't the Jewish people, at least not yet. Samaritans. John chapter 4, you remember the incident with the Samaritan woman? When uh, the Samaritan woman says, you know, we we think that the Messiah, when he comes, is going to reveal all things. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. I'm the Christ. I'm that Messiah. Why would he identify himself explicitly as the Messiah to the Samaritans but not to the Jews? Well, you think it might have something to do with the expectations the Samaritans had concerning the Messiah? You see, the Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch as their scripture. That's all they accepted, just the Pentateuch. And so when they said Messiah, they expected a prophet like Moses. No militaristic, political overtones whatsoever. A prophet. And therefore, Jesus could identify himself to the Samaritans a lot more safely than he could to the Jewish people at least early on in his ministry. So, if Jesus had not identified himself explicitly as the Messiah to the Jewish people, then please tell me, what did he mean when he said to those Jews standing there in the temple, I told you, past tense. I told you. Well, Jesus explained, didn't he? what had testified loudly and clearly concerning the identity of Jesus Jesus says the works that I do in my father's name these testify of me now what would those works include you think i would imagine the miracles that he performed in the father's name I would think also even the teaching he delivered in the Father's name. In fact, I would go so far as to say the works of Jesus included everything he said and everything he did. And you remember that John has already recorded some claims of Jesus in this gospel. If you go back to chapter 5, let me remind you of two statements by Jesus. John five nineteen. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Jesus claims, whatever the Father does, I do. And then in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 36... But the testimony which I have, Jesus said, is greater than the testimony of John. Of course, he's referring to John the Baptist. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. So what was Jesus communicating to those Jewish adversaries in the temple that day at the Feast of Dedication? He basically was saying, I have already given you sufficient testimony concerning my identity. The works I have performed in my Father's name have supplied you with ample evidence about who I am. Now, of course, that prompts a question. If the Jews have already received ample evidence, then why didn't they believe? Well, look at verse 26. What was the cause of their belief? Does Jesus accuse them of obtuseness? Were they intellectually incapable of comprehending? No. Jesus says, You are not believing because you are not of my sheep. In other words, because those Jewish adversaries who were challenging Jesus did not belong to him they did not accept and believe the testimony he had provided by the works which he performed now think a moment concerning the implications of this statement made by Jesus based upon what Jesus has just said What must be a requirement for a person to believe the testimony provided by the works of Jesus? Looks like you you have to be one of His sheep, right? If you're going to believe His works. Doesn't that remind you of something Jesus said on another occasion to some other Jewish opponents? In John chapter 8, Jesus said to some Jewish adversaries... He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear because you are not of God. What does all of this imply? Which comes first? Believing the works of Jesus? Believing the testimony of Jesus? Or becoming one of his sheep. Can you see now why Jesus taught his disciples? No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Or again, why the Apostle Paul would write to the Corinthians and say, but a natural man, a literally a soulish man, a man who does not possess the Holy Spirit. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot, the Greek literally says, he is unable to understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually appraised. I don't know about you, but I find this amazing, isn't it? Some people could see the works of Jesus and conclude, this man is the Christ. Other people could see the very same works performed by Jesus and conclude, this man has a demon. Bottom line, the words of Jesus recorded in verses 25 and 26 have incredibly strong implications for the doctrines of predestination and election we don't have time to go down that rabbit trail we need to look at eight characteristics Jesus used to describe his sheep so look at what Jesus says in verses 27 through 29 my sheep Jesus says hear my voice and I know them and they follow me And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now look at those eight characteristics Jesus used to describe His sheep. First of all, they hear His voice. Secondly, they are known by Jesus. Now, please don't think that simply means Jesus knows their name or He recognizes them. To be known by Jesus means that Jesus has an intimate personal relationship with His sheep. I mean, after all, they are members of His flock. And just a little bit early in this chapter, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And I know my own. My own know me. Number three, they follow Jesus. Number four, his sheep receive eternal life from Jesus. And five, since they possess eternal life, it follows that they will never perish. Six, they are secure in Jesus' hand. Seven, they have been given to Jesus by his Father. And number eight, they are secure in the Father's hand. And so based upon those Eight characteristics I say to you this morning. If you are one of Jesus' sheep, upon what does the security of your salvation ultimately depend? Upon your faith, your strength, your determination, your perseverance, or upon the power and settled will of God himself. This is is one of the most wonderful passages dealing with security of the believer that I'm aware of in the entire Bible. But having described his sheep, Jesus then concluded his answer to the Jews with a real shocker. Look what he says in verse 30. I and the Father are one. Now, we don't have time to explore everything Jesus may have intended by that statement, but there's one crucial matter we need to consider. Was Jesus making an ontological assertion? That may not be a word that you typically use over your breakfast table, ontological. But here's what that means. Was Jesus asserting that he and the Father were one in essence, one in nature, one in being? Probably not. Now, there are other texts that do teach the ontological oneness between Jesus the Son and the Father. This is probably not one of them. And why would I say that? Well, there are a number of reasons, but one of them is the word for one in the original language that is used here is in the neuter gender. If Jesus had intended to make an ontological affirmation, he probably would have used the word one in the masculine gender. So, what was Jesus asserting? What did he actually mean? well look at the immediate context what's Jesus been talking about no one can snatch my sheep out of my hand no one can snatch my sheep out of my father's hand what he is probably asserting is a functional unity the father and the son are united in will and purpose to keep his sheep secure in that sense the father and the son are one but you know what Even if it was just a functional unity, I say just, I mean that's pretty significant, but if that's what it was, a functional unity, even that carries some pretty significant implications about the identity of Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, if you'd been one of those Jewish people standing there that that day and heard Jesus say that, how would you have responded? Well, you don't have to guess. Look at verse 31 and following. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Jesus. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered Jesus, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So that Jewish audience clearly understood that to claim the kind of unity which Jesus claimed for himself was tantamount tantamount to claiming a oneness with God that would make a person God. And so they accused him of blasphemy and making himself God. Now, right about here, think about something. That Jewish crowd came to Jesus and issued a demand. If you're the Christ, speak to us plainly. Well, Jesus seems to have been speaking to them pretty plainly, I think. It appears that that Jewish crowd got more than they bargained for, don't you think? They've come to Jesus and now they wanted to know, if you're the Christ, speak to us plainly. Well, he's spoken pretty plainly and now they want to kill him. In light of what we have observed in this particular passage, let me suggest just a couple or a few applications very quickly. First of all, have you ever heard someone say something like this? You know, I would believe in God if he just gave me sufficient evidence. Ever heard anybody say something like that? i believe in God if he just give me sufficient evidence. You know, it's in a challenging, self-assertive manner. This person demands that God prove himself to his or her satisfaction. In light of what we have looked at this morning, how might you respond to that person? Well, may I suggest that we take a look at what Jesus said and did to that crowd of Jewish people in the temple who made a very similar demand of Jesus? First of all, notice, Jesus apparently did not feel at all obligated to satisfy the demand of those who challenged him. He didn't feel like he had to really answer. You know, he didn't say to them, Oh, bless your hearts, I'm sorry. Let me speak to you very clearly and plainly concerning my identity as the Messiah. Now, you know this as well as I do. God is under no compunction to respond to the insolent demands of His creation. Now, sometimes, in His love and His mercy, God may choose to respond to a sincere, broken-hearted plea for evidence. I'm sure you've read the testimonies as as I have, where people have said, God, if you're there, give me some evidence and in his love and mercy sometimes God has but that wasn't an insolent demand that was a broken hearted plea for help you know it's, I think it's important that we remind ourselves in our culture and our society today that God will never per- permit himself to be domesticated or manipulated into doing our bidding in response to our arrogant demands. He's God, after all. But in the second place, doesn't the Scripture teach us that God has already given sufficient evidence to everyone concerning His divine power, His eternal power and divine nature? You remember what Paul wrote to the Romans? Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Now I ask you, isn't that almost precisely what Jesus said to that Jewish audience that day in the temple? Look, if you just look at what I've done, My works have testified concerning my identity. I have already given you ample evidence of who I am and of my identity. You choose not to believe. You reject the testimony I have already provided through what I have done. One last point. Susan even made a brief reference to it. I'm going to ask you this this morning. Have you ever said, don't pay attention, do not pay attention to what I do, pay attention to what I say? You know? Don't do what I do, do what I say. Do you realize? that Jesus would very likely never ever say anything like that. I submit to you that Jesus would be far more likely to say my works. The things that I do verify and confirm who I am and everything that I say to you. And this morning, I suggest to you that as Jesus' sheep, You and I are responsible to live in such a way, to conduct ourselves in such a way that our works also verify and confirm our identity as his sheep and what we profess to believe. And I wonder if that's not just possibly what Jesus may have meant when he said to his sheep on one occasion... Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it seems propitious that we are able this morning to study a passage and meet on the day when perhaps, according to the Jewish calendar, Jesus visited Jerusalem and encountered those adversaries and presented this teaching. Our hearts rejoice this morning, Father, to know that as your sheep and as we follow you, You not only know us, but you hold us securely in your hand. May we, as your sheep, members of your flock, commit ourselves to walk, to live, to obey. You, to follow you in such a way that our works bear testimony to our identity as your children, your disciples, your sheep. Thank you for your marvelous love. Thank you, Father, that you are so merciful and forgiving in our lives. We thank you and praise you for the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives to grant us the resources to obey and to follow as your sheep. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.